I saw one guy in a gas mask, and he made a big movement, and that's when they fired. Ten soldiers and Nixon coming. I got up and I realized, I asked her if she was okay. And uh, she said, you know, she's just sort of moaned, Barry, I'm hit. Four dead in Ohio. The first words out of his mouth, with his hand still on the door handle, were, they should have shot all of them. The person who answered it said, Allison was DOA. And my mom collapsed. What if you knew her and found her dead on the ground? To state the facts about Kent State is easy. There were plenty of recordings made on the day. Four persons, including two women, were shot and killed on the Kent State University campus today during renewed demonstrations involving hundreds of students. The university was ordered closed as disorders continued for more than two hours. May 4, 1970, four students at Kent State University, a public institution in northeastern Ohio, were shot dead by the Ohio National Guard during a demonstration against the escalation of the Vietnam War. Nine others were wounded. Those are the facts. These sounds, recorded as the event unfolded, are closer to the truth of what happened that day. Chaos, violence, anger, and fear. They have been shot? They have been shot. They are dead. That general told me I have my orders, just like an SS commander. He doesn't give a fuck if he wipes you out, okay? You know that, man. I know, I'm with you, but don't get killed! The troops are now coming over the hill, right beside Taylor Hall. I don't want you kids to die. You're too many of you are too damn good to die in a stinking field here. I don't care whether you've never listened to anyone before in your lives. I am begging you right now, if you don't disperse right now, they're going to move in and it can only be a slaughter. Would you please listen to me? Jesus Christ, I don't want to be a part of this. The truth about those days and the weeks and years that followed is what this program is about. It's to remind those who were alive then, and more importantly, to tell the story to those who weren't. Over the decades, many would prefer that people forget Kent State. For those who were on the killing field that day, forgetting is a luxury they don't have. The sun was shining. We thought we'd have a brief, peaceful rally. Nobody anticipated there would be a scene of violence Alan Canfora, a junior or third-year student in 1970. At noon, we started our rally, and immediately the National Guard started firing a tremendous amount of tear gas. Gerald Casali, a senior, expected the tear gas. What we thought would happen was the ritual. Try to round us up, try to put us on buses and send us to Ravenna, Ohio, to the Portage County Jail. And, of course, that's the way it started, with the tear gas and the formations that threaten you. You know, you're an unarmed student, and here comes the guard in their uniforms with the M1 rifles, with the bayonets, and they 
they take them from a resting position to a, a position of uh, threatening, pointing at you, and marching. And so you run. There were only about 300 protesters in the core group, but bystanders, other kids on their way to and from class, got sucked into what was going on. Most ran up and over a hill to get away from the tear gas that had been fired. But they followed us over the hill, which was, in retrospect, I think, ominous. And while they were over on that other side of the hill, they were looking around and they started to aim. About a dozen guardsmen out of the 76 began to kneel and aim toward me and others. And it was a very frightening moment. It seemed unusual. It was unexpected. There was no reason for it to happen. We were hundreds of feet away. You know, the twist came where they suddenly stop and they're not chasing you. So you stop and you look at them and it's a face off and you're looking at them. They're looking at you and they get in this formation at the top of the hill. That's when it, it was just totally perplexing. It's like I remember, you know, remarking to somebody next to me, what are they doing? Right. And there's a lot of chaos and a lot of yelling and a lot of fear. But there was that moment of calm, just like in a Scorsese movie where, you know, Raging Bull, where they, they go into uh, expressionistic sound in slow motion when Jake LaMotta gets smacked in the head and it all goes, you know. And, and I saw, and I maintain this to this day, I saw one guy in a gas mask who was, you know, the, the lieutenant or whoever was in charge up there at the top of the hill screaming. And then he gestured with a great big hand gesture, and that's when they fired. At that moment, I immediately assumed they were shooting blank shots. I didn't think these were real bullets. But in my mind, as I began to run, I zigged to my left and zagged to my right, zigzag, and I jumped behind a tree, a large oak tree. And as soon as I got behind that tree, that's when I felt a bullet penetrate through my wrist. I looked off to my right, I could see my roommate, Tom Grace, out in the open in the line of fire, and he was shot through his ankle. You're hearing rifles and puffs of smoke, and everything freezes, just like a freeze frame. And then suddenly, all around me, there was screaming. And that's when I saw Jeffrey Miller laying on his stomach uh, in, the, in the road there with a pool of blood rushing out, you know, and it's... It's like 1230 or whatever, and it's the first beautiful day of spring in an otherwise, you know, cold, rainy spring. And the sky is blue and there's buds on the trees and there's the bright red blood on the asphalt. The view from the National Guard side of the line echoes Casali and Canforas. Retired captain of the Ohio National Guard, J. Ronald Snyder, remembers. The shots were fired. First a shot or two, and then a volley uh, of shots. And I seen uh, one student that was uh, going forward, and I knew he was going to be dead right off the bat because he staggered around and fell in the concrete. I seen several other students fall. The next thing I did was take a squad from the first platoon and uh, moved with my radio operator out to the first student. My object was to see who was dead, who needed ambulances, and that kind of thing. 
The dead were Jeffrey Miller and Alison Krauss, who were taking part in the demonstration, and Sandra Scheuer and William Knox Schroeder, who were simply on their way to class. The victims were all several hundred feet away from the guardsmen. After the ambulances came to take away the dead and the wounded, Kasali returned to his dorm. I think I had a nervous breakdown. I think a lot of the students had a collective nervous breakdown because what happened was so egregious, so wrong, and of course so upside down. You watched how the media and the authorities coalesced around a false narrative that the students were threatening the guard and, and that the guard acted in self-defense and that students are pariahs and it was created by out-of-state students being outside agitators that were commies. And, you know, most of the population believed this, the kids deserved it. Initial reports from Kent, repeated by the news media, said the guard had been fired on first. Fake news, which framed many Americans' view of what happened. Nothing comes out of nothing. That spring, the Vietnam War had been going on for years, and with it, a growing movement of people of all ages against the war. But the young, university students, were the frontline troops of the anti-war movement. The movement was a powerful new force in an America politically led by veterans of the Good War, World War II. Anti-war activism helped convince President Lyndon Johnson not to seek re-election in 1968. Richard Nixon was elected that year on a pledge to end the war, and while fewer troops were in the field in 1970, the war ground on and the draft continued. Protest became more organized and widespread. More than a million people had taken part in a series of marches the previous autumn. The mainstream press was overwhelmingly critical. Nixon felt the sting. You know, you see these bums, you know, blowing up the campuses. Listen, the boys that are on the college campuses today are the luckiest people in the world. In March 1970, the president dictated a memo to his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, about setting up a group in the White House to attack his critics. The more I think of it, setting up a special group, including Nossiger, Buchanan, Molinoff, and Houston, for the purpose not of cheering, but solely of attacking and defending, is of the highest priority. Out of this group could come speech material for not only congressmen and senators, but cabinet officers, Agnew. Vice President Spiro Agnew was attack dog number one. His style was lofty condescension rather than barking. Next time a mob of students waving their non-negotiable demands starts pitching bricks and rocks at the student union, just imagine that they're wearing brown shirts and white sheets and act accordingly. While Nixon was ordering his attack dogs to bark, American troops were patrolling near the Ho Chi Minh Trail on the Vietnam-Cambodia border, as documented in a CBS News report. All right, what's wrong next? All right, give me some cover.
On campuses, the division stoked by Nixon's campaign to paint students as a kind of enemy and worries about the draft smoldered. And then on Thursday, April 30th, Nixon ignited the conflagration. In cooperation with the armed forces of South Vietnam, attacks are being launched this week to clean out major enemy sanctuaries on the Cambodian-Vietnam border. This is not an invasion of Cambodia. And within hours, in a world without internet or mobile phones, we all knew this was an invasion, a massive escalation of war that called for a massive escalation of protest. At Kent State, not far from Cleveland, long-simmering town and gown, tensions about the war, draftees versus draft dodgers, led to violence in a downtown area of bars just off campus. Then the building housing the university's reserve officer training corps, ROTC, a symbol of the war, was set alight. Ohio's Republican governor, James Rhodes, a staunch Nixon ally, ordered the National Guard to occupy the town. Then Rhodes met the press. We've seen here at the city of Kent, especially, probably the most vicious form of campus-oriented violence yet perpetrated by dissident groups and their allies in the state of Ohio. We have these same groups going from one campus to the other. They make definite plans of burning, destroying, and throwing rocks at police and at the National Guard and the Highway Patrol. We're going to ask for legislation that if these people are convicted, whether it's a misdemeanor or felony, participating in a riot, they're automatically dismissed, there's no hearing, no recourse, and they cannot enter another state university in the state of Ohio. We are going to eradicate the problem. We're not going to treat the symptoms. There's no sanctuary for these people. Colonel Cranmire of the Highway Patrol, part of the military force assembled at Kent, told reporters. We have uh, men that are well trained, but they're not trained to receive bricks. We won't take it. Any hoodlum with a gun will be handled the same as any other hoodlum. The next phase that we have encountered in elsewhere is where they start sniping. They can expect us to return fire. The National Guard commanders were then given a security briefing, remembers retired Captain J. Ronald Snyder, in charge of Company C. We were on guard for that possibility because intelligence had indicated to us that they were in fact armed people about the uh, area. One such uh, intelligence briefing that I had indicated that somewhere within some off-campus apartments was a person with a machine gun and ammo and did not know what their intentions was. I don't know how that intelligence came to the people that distributed it, but we were aware that's a serious threat. And it was in this atmosphere, a country whose divisions were being exploited by the president and with troops primed for extreme violence, that students convened on Monday, May 4th at noon on the Commons, the central lawn of the Kent State University campus. What if you knew her and found her dead on the ground? How can you run when you know? On May 4, 1970, 
I arrived home on the bus from junior high. Laurel Krauss, younger sister of Allison Krauss. A neighbor ran up to me as I was walking home, and she told me that Allison had been hurt. And I was like immediately frightened, and I and I said, "Well, what should I do?" She says, "Call your parents." And both my parents worked, so I ran home and I called my mom. She came home and she immediately started calling. She was trying to call Allison in her dorm. And then she tried calling the university. And we learned later that all the phone lines had been cut at Kent State University. And we're, we're getting tied up in knots, you know, not knowing about our Allison. And finally, she heard from someone to call Ravenna, Ohio, Robinson Memorial Hospital. And she called and it was busy and she finally got through. And when we were there, when we were on the phone, the person who answered it said, Allison was DOA. And my mom collapsed and I screamed. All hope extinguished. The family, who lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had a friend drive them the 90 miles to the hospital in Ravenna, Ohio. It was filled with military personnel, and they had M1s. And we were led to a room where Allison laid on a gurney, lifeless. I could see her from outside the room. I wasn't allowed in because I was young, but I saw. And I saw that her, her spirit had already left the body. She was lifeless. And as I'm standing there, I'm hearing muttering. My whole family heard it. We're hearing they should have shot more as we're identifying her body and that she deserved it. And that's what we heard for days. That, you know, how dare my sister protest against the Vietnam War on her campus? How wrong she was to do that. And she deserved to die for that. So the next day, my father went on national news from our backyard. She resented being called a bum because she disagreed with someone else's opinion. She felt that war in Cambodia was wrong. Is this dissent a crime? Is this a reason for killing her? Have we come to such a state in this country that a young girl has to be shot because she disagrees deeply with the actions of her government? Allison represented everyone of that generation. It could have been anyone that was protesting that war. On campuses all over America, that was the feeling. It could have been me. Higher education ground to a halt. Nearly 900 colleges and universities were shut down. Millions of students went on strike. Yeah, the fact that our classmates, really, Kent State, were treated like this in such a malevolent and, and monstrous fashion had to do with it. It was a local, you need to generate local passion. And that clearly did it for me. Dan Goldwitz was a second-year student at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, a three-hour drive southwest of Kent that spring. So was I. Dan was my best friend. 
Everything at Antioch shuddered to a halt, replaced by rumors, meetings, and earnest discussions about what phase of revolution the massacre, we called it that immediately, represented. Was it 1905, the unsuccessful first attempt at revolution in Russia, or 1917, when bold action seized power? As if by osmosis, in an age where a payphone in the dorm was the only connection to the outside world, a demonstration was organized for Washington, D.C. on Saturday, May 9th. Dan and I headed out for the Capitol. The further we got from campus, the more it became clear. It was not 1905 or 1917 or anything. America was going about its business. The events at Kent hadn't changed the debate. It was still them and us. In New York, a group of students went to City Hall to continue the pressure on Nixon to get troops out of Cambodia. They were confronted by construction workers wearing hard hats, recalled Union official Tommy Burns a decade later. Well, I was on Water Street, and we all just headed towards uh, Broadway. And uh, all you could hear was just shouting in senses of, let's get the bastards and, and let's finish this once and for all. As the hard hats rioted in New York, tens of thousands were gathering in D.C. The weather was hot, and many slept rough around the Lincoln Memorial, in sight of the White House. Around four in the morning, Richard Nixon, unable to sleep, looked across the south lawn of the White House towards the Lincoln Memorial, where he saw protesters milling around. He ordered a car and driver from the motor pool, and, with his valet, Manolo Sanchez, rode the short distance to the memorial and began chatting with the students. A short time later, he dictated his recollections. This was the only time they'd ever talked to a president of the United States. They will see me many times discuss, and discuss these heated, angry subjects that they, will, that they would hear later at the monument, that they hear in their classroom. Perhaps the major contribution I could make to them is to try to lift them a bit out of this, of the miserable intellectual wasteland in which they now wander endlessly around. Paragraph. By mid-morning, the crowd had grown to 75,000, according to official estimates. I'm reasonably certain it was well north of 100,000. We milled around for hours, wondering what action would be taken, what the consequences would be. The number to call for legal aid in case you're busted is 466-2360. The speeches were delayed. Eventually, Jane Fonda gave hers. The people of the world are watching us because the American protesters are holding out the last hope that there are still people in this country who are fighting for individual freedom and social justice. Not everything was political. Frisbees were being thrown, people were frolicking in the reflecting pool between the Lincoln Memorial and Washington Monument. The mood was half Woodstock, half Storm the Winter Palace, the essential divide in the anti-war movement. It was Washington, D.C. hot, a sapping, semi-tropical heat. My friend Dan and I found a small patch of shade and gave in to despair. It was so 
poorly organized. And it just put in, at least my mind, maybe the futility of all that we needed to really, you know, take action unto ourselves because no action was going to come from this. We walked into the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History to get some air conditioning. The place was packed with weekend crowds, families touring the nation's capital. When we had cooled down, we walked back out onto Constitution Avenue, an oil-and-water mixture of middle American families and protesters, and marching up the middle of the street, a phalanx of hardcore politicals, yippies, carrying coffins, which they planned to deposit at the front door of the White House. We fell in with them. At the corner of 15th Street, the group turned left. To get to the White House, they had to turn right. I shouted out, No, yippies, it's this way, follow me! And amazingly, they did. Not that there was a hope of getting to the building. The wagons were well and truly circled. The White House grounds were surrounded by a barricade of empty buses. I remember very vividly trying to push over a bus with uh, probably 50 other people uh, at each bus. And, um, and we were making progress. The things were being tipped. Um, but uh, not before the tear gas started to fly, and we had, and we come, we we came very ill prepared. It wasn't just tear gas. On the roofs of the buildings across from the White House, soldiers were sighting their guns down on us. Given what had just happened at Kent State, it was not a pleasant feeling. The messages were so mixed and, and incoherent, it seemed like the best thing to do would be to push over a bus. Frankly. So I guess we were ad-libbing. <laughs> uh, what, what would have happened if, if there was a plan of action that had been enunciated at the reflecting pool? But there was no plan. The day ended without major incident, and students continued to die. The following week at Jackson State, a black college in Mississippi. The bullet-shattered dormitory building at the State College here in Jackson, where Negro students James Earl Green, 17, and Philip Gibbs, 21, died in last week's shooting tragedy, has now become something of a shrine. Fresh flowers are set outside the main doorway every day, and the posters on the railings tell something of the town's tense and angry reaction. Philip Gibbs's funeral was a quiet affair and passed almost unnoticed, but Jackson was on full alert for James Green's funeral. Negro leaders and liberal white politicians clearly chose to use it to highlight black emotions. More than a thousand National Guardsmen, camping not far from the college itself, were put on standby by Governor John Bell Williams, who'd warned the state on television that he wasn't going to tolerate any more violence. Governor Williams added to the tension by criticizing a group of Washington senators and congressmen who flew down to Jackson by special plane to attend the funeral and sympathize. Among the delegation was Harlem representative Adam Clayton Powell. The BBC's Charles Wheeler asked him to respond to Governor Johnny Bell Williams' criticisms. He's a damn liar. His move was an act of uh, Christian hypocrisy. I know Johnny Bell Williams very well. I repeat, his act is an act of Christian hypocrisy. Why have you come here today, all of you, sir? Come in, I hope you're trying to save the souls of these uh, racists and fascists in Mississippi who don't deserve to belong to the United States of America. They either ought to secede or uh, move to uh, behind the Iron Curtain where the communists can take good care of them. Maybe they all ought to be sent to uh, Cambodia. 
Kent and Jackson State, two public universities, many of whose students were the first in their families to attain higher education, became linked forever. Gotta get down to it. Soldiers are cutting us down. Should have been done long ago. Where do you go for justice when it's agents of the government who have pulled the trigger? The likelihood of criminal charges being filed against the guard unit that shot the students was always small. We wanted accountability. We wanted to know what happened to our Allison. That's what, all we wanted. How dare we want to know what happened to Allison? It's none of our business. My father took action very quickly and he started legal action against the wrongful killing of student protesters. Well, first of all, May 4th, 1970 is my birthday. Lawyer Stephen Sindel. Later that day, some friends threw him a birthday party, and he found himself chatting with an old classmate about the day's terrible events. And he said that he had just had a meeting that included a cousin of a guy named Arthur Krauss from Pittsburgh whose daughter was shot and killed. And he, he and I said, "Oh my goodness, he must must have been in shock at that point as well." And uh, <laughs> he said, "Would you be interested in handling the case?" And I kind of looked at him like he was kidding. Stephen Sindel was only twenty-seven when Arthur Krauss hired him. The idea was to bring a civil suit in state and federal court on behalf of the families. Unsurprisingly, Governor Rhodes refused to testify. His lawyer said he had sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity actually dates back uh, to the uh, English monarchy, where the principle was that the king can do no wrong, and therefore you couldn't sue the sovereign in England, and that somehow got imported to the United States, and individual states had what was called at that time sovereign immunity, which meant you couldn't sue the state or any of its agents, which would include the National Guard. The federal case claimed that the students' First Amendment civil right to freedom of assembly had been violated. After three years of preliminary work, three years of seeing his case thrown out in state courts, on December 4, 1973, Sindel argued on behalf of the Kent State victims at the United States Supreme Court. We'll hear arguments next in uh, 1318, Krauss against Rhodes. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. I don't believe that this case can be decided with respect to the questions of law that are presented without a reference, at least some reference point, to what the record contains with regard to the facts. And I think something has to be said in that regard. Sindel decided to build his argument by quoting an FBI report into the events. Let us then take judicial notice of one responsible investigative organ of this nation, and that is the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where it was specifically stated, and I am quoting it, pages 24 and 25 of our brief, things like these, quote, we have some reason to believe that the claim by the National Guard that their lives were endangered by the students was fabricated subsequent to the event. 
One guardsman admitted that his life was not in danger and that he fired indiscriminately into the crowd. He further stated that the guardsmen had gotten together after the shooting and decided to fabricate the story that they were in danger of seriously bodily harm or death from the students. For the FBI to publish a report saying the National Guardsmen admitted fabricating after the event the claim that their lives were endangered by the students that they had been fired on was extraordinary. After all, this was the FBI of J. Edgar Hoover. They were a fairly conservative type of agency. I mean, they certainly didn't have any strong left-wing political orientation of any kind that would naturally favor the students. So they had a high credibility. And when they gave a report that was so favorable to us, uh, I thought it would be impressive to quote from it. Sindel was certain the court would be receptive to the argument for one reason. I think that the political climate changed with the Watergate events, and that made our case more cogent and appealing, perhaps. Not two months before the lawyer argued in front of the Supreme Court, Spiro Agnew had been forced to resign over charges of tax evasion. Richard Nixon had set off alarm bells about executive power overreach by firing the Watergate special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, in what became known as the Saturday Night Massacre. I think what happened basically with Watergate in terms of what you described, which was Nixon's uh, midnight, Saturday night or whatever massacre, was essentially to bring into question the wisdom of chief executives. The Supreme Court voted unanimously in favor of the Kent State family's case, but there would be years of argument in state courts before a settlement was reached in 1979. $675,000 was shared among the 13 families, but money was never the point. The word I would use to sum up the motivation of the families and uh, some of the students was vindication. I think overwhelmingly the goal was to bring out the truth. That was very important. And also to uh, obtain a measure of recognition, vindication about what really happened and who was responsible. I'm not sure that they satisfactorily achieved that. But nevertheless, we sure as all heck got the facts out. There was no question about that. By the time the court case was settled, what happened at Kent State and Jackson State had begun to fade from memory, except as cultural artifacts. Two weeks after the four students were killed, Neil Young and his bandmates David Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash went into a studio to record Young's song, Ohio. Three weeks after Jackson State, on June 1st, Marvin Gaye went into Motown's Hitsville studio in Detroit to record a song he had been working on for a while. Mother, 
other music was shaped by events at Kent. Gerald Casali created a band called Devo. Devo wouldn't exist without that. Casali paid a price for his student activism. He was blacklisted and lost a scholarship to do graduate work in art at the University of Michigan. He had to do his master's degree at his place of trauma, Kent State. There he, his brother, and some friends formed Devo around a simple idea. The pop culture indoctrination we had grown up with in the 50s and 60s about America's bright, shining future was a lie. Devo was a, it was a contraction for de-evolution because what we saw in the culture, we labeled it de-evolution. <laughs> because we didn't see people getting smarter, we didn't see this progress that had been you know, promised in the 60s and domed cities with flying cars and, uh, you know, housewives that push a button and don't have to work. And uh, what we saw was, again, the, the kind of consolidation in the military industrial complex of power centrally and the erosion of individual freedom and a kind of a herd mentality. We saw all this and then we saw people thinking in sound bites and just parroting whatever they heard on television from any right-wing commentator or any kind of like headline in any local rag. We, we just saw that happening like the sheep in Animal Farm that read the rules on the side of the barn and parrot them and then the next day the pigs change the rules and the sheep don't remember that the rules were different the day before. Remembrance, truthful remembrance about May 4th, 1970, has become the self-assumed obligation of several people as the decades roll by. Alan Canfora has remained in the Kent vicinity. Some of us, we have felt a duty to speak out for those students who were silenced forever. Jeffrey Miller was my friend. He was killed. He was in that picture with the young woman screaming over his dead body. That was my friend Jeff. He can't speak for himself. He can't cry out from the grave. There are others. Laura Davis, Professor Emeritus at Kent State. Well, my father always came home at 6 o'clock, and he saw me, and he just said to me, the first words out of his mouth, with his hand still on the door handle, were, they should have shot all of them. And I never talked back to my father, but I said to him, don't you know then that one of those people would have been me? Laura Davis, like Gerald Casale and Alan Canfora, was a local kid, and like them, the first in her family to go to university. Davis ended up spending her life at Kent as an English professor and administrator, and becoming one of its chief memorializers. A decade before her mandatory retirement date, she and the late Carol Barbato, a friend who had also been a student on the day and had also made a career teaching at the university, began talking. We started thinking about who's going to be here to tell the story. We knew that people showed up all the time to wander around the site, which wasn't marked in any way. They remembered Kent State. They remembered the shootings. They would see the sign along the highway and pull off and come to the campus or be riding their bikes across country and come to campus. But there was nothing there to interpret the site. The pair worked to create the May 4th Center on the campus. Most people know about May 4th, but a lot of people draw logical conclusions about what must have happened, but it's not what happened. 
Well, what the, are some uh, of those conclusions? The main thing is that people think, well, if, if the guardsman shot, then the students must have been doing something to provoke that. And that was not the case. In 2017, after a long process initiated by Davis, Kent State was designated a National Historic Landmark, elevating the campus to the same rare status as the site of the Boston Massacre and the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama, where Martin Luther King and hundreds of others were attacked by dogs and riot police. It was a key battle of the civil rights movement. Remembrance is one thing. Truth is another. The biggest unresolved question of the event remains. Was the guard ordered to shoot? For decades, Alan Canfora looked for proof that it was. In 2005, Canfora found what he is certain is the answer. After the court case was finished, all the materials and evidence collected were shipped to Yale University to be archived for future historians to use. I was looking for evidence that could help to prove that the National Guard had committed murder at Kent State, because that's exactly what it was. It was a conscious, intentional, planned act where someone gave the order, and I said that from the beginning, and so did some of the guardsmen in their handwritten reports. Five of the guardsmen said they heard a verbal command to fire. Student eyewitnesses nearby said they heard the verbal command to fire. A university electrician named Jack Albrecht was walking out of the building nearby passed nearby the guardsman, and he was pro-war. This electrician was pro-war, pro-Nixon, but he told the news media thereafter he heard a National Guard commander issue the order to fire. In a box at Yale was an audio cassette, a transfer of a reel-to-reel -reel recording made on the day by Terry Struby, a student, a sound geek, who put his tape recorder on and placed a microphone on his dorm room window ledge to record the scene. The Struby tape is the only recording of the shots. Canfora had it transferred to a CD. I went to my laptop and I inserted it. I listened to the whole 29 minutes and I knew that near the end I was going to hear the gunfire. I didn't anticipate, though, that right before the gunfire I would hear what I thought was a verbal command to fire. Right here. Point. Fire. And I had to play it over and over without headphones, by the way. And I heard then, as I hear today, and many people have verified, including some experts, that there is a command shouted, a militaristic command that concludes with the word fire immediately preceding the 13 seconds of gunfire. Several forensic audio experts agreed with Canfora, but the tape has never been seen as conclusive. Facts are the building blocks of truth, and an uncomfortable fact after the aftermath of Kent State, Jackson State, is this. The Vietnam War went on, but protest began to diminish, even if the rage did not. We were really angry. Karen Stern. I was in high school. It really did affect me a lot because 
It was like a political awakening. The following year, Stern was a freshman at State University of Buffalo, New York. And on the first anniversary of Kent State, she went to Washington to shut the government down in the May days of rage. The government was ready. Federal troops from as far away as Fort Bragg, North Carolina, were alerted 10 days ago for possible duty in Washington. They were not moved into the area until this weekend. Most arrived today aboard Air Force transports, which landed every 15 minutes at Andrews Air Force Base south of the capital. 4,000 troops from the Army... Peaceful protestation wasn't working. And, of course, it, I mean, it was about ending the war. That was really the, the point of, of going down there to shut down the government. They just rounded everybody up. Yeah, I say my protest lasted maybe 20 minutes before the arrest. There were about 20 to 30 of us in a cell, I'd say, all women. I think I decided at that point I was not a very brave person to put myself in physical danger. And I think that lasted with me for most of my life, that I would have to sort of act out my political conscience in some different way than putting myself in physical harm. Stern was not alone. The war droned on, but the great confrontations with the Nixon administration were over. At Christmas 1972, Nixon broke off peace talks to bomb Hanoi. Protest was muted. The following year, in Chile, on September 11th, the Chilean military moved to overthrow the Allende government. Virtually no protest. By the early 1980s, President Ronald Reagan was in power and looking to reassert American hegemony, a point underlined in a 1983 special address to a joint session of Congress. For several years now, under two administrations, the United States has been increasing its defense of freedom in the Caribbean Basin. And I can tell you tonight, democracy is beginning to take root in El Salvador, which until a short time ago knew only dictatorship. Throughout the 1980s in El Salvador and other countries in Central America, the Reagan administration backed dictatorships and trained and armed their paramilitary units and death squads. No mass movement of millions formed. The last demonstration I went on was on May 4, 1981, the 11th anniversary of the Kent State Massacre. Around 75,000 people marched from the Lincoln Memorial to the Pentagon, but by then, the energy had become fragmented. Over here, the gay rights marchers, over there, the Freedom for Palestine group, Latino, Native American. It was a patchwork, not assembled into a whole. One of the speakers at the Pentagon said, Hello, we're back. But really, not it was all very polite and not likely to make the administration reconsider its policy. And the president didn't. The facts about what happened at Kent State are simple. On May 4, 1970, the National Guard shot and killed four unarmed students and wounded nine others. The truth of what that has meant for American society is more complex. America today is as divided as it was then, in some ways more so, 
because the divisions exploited by Richard Nixon and his team, the methods they use to divide Americans, have become embedded in the society over the last 50 years. Nixon and his vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned in disgrace, but the men who put the words in their mouths went on to brilliant careers in the media and frame political discussion. William Sapphire, Agnew's speechwriter, was given a regular opinion column by the New York Times. Nixon communication strategist Roger Ailes would found Fox News. Everything from the 1970 playbook is in use, including the threat of violence. The guards are very gentle with him. He's walking out like big high fives, smiling, laughing, like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! Oh, my God. Oh, badly hurt. Oh, my God, badly hurt. The day after Donald Trump was inaugurated, a million women demonstrated all over America. Half a million in Washington alone. Find out what it means to me. But since then, the streets are empty, the campus is quiet, people are too busy tweeting. A few women who were on the march have got involved trying to turn voters out, like Rebecca Sandberg, who I met in Atlanta during 2018's midterm elections. It's hard to tell what's going to work at this point. I mean, we, I think a lot of us think that if we could get the Obama magic back in 2008, he was able to reach voters that maybe weren't likely voters for him. But, you know, that time has passed as well. So I think we're, we're all trying to figure out what's going to work because turnout has been our big issue. So what's going to get people to turn out? What do they really care about? And that's what we're trying to figure out. In 1970, there was nothing to figure out. There was a mass movement against the war, not asking permission. But today, nothing has grown to counter a presidency that has shattered all norms, a movement capable of consistently turning out hundreds of thousands of people all around the country, a movement engaged in civil disobedience. Why? Was a lesson internalized from Kent State and Jackson State? You can go this far, but no further, or you will get shot. This is just more horrible than I could have ever even imagined. Gerald Casale. This is what we were preaching about and warning about and afraid of, and it's gone down. We won the cultural war back then. We lost the power war. We're more of a corporate feudal state than ever. You have a population that's obeying. The concept of rebellion isn't even there. Laurel Krauss has a theory about why this happened. When a government takes action like they did with Kent State and they don't allow truth to be part of the story, they also stymie healing because no one has peace from what happened. When you control the narrative and it was no one's fault and it was an unfortunate incident, which is what they say now, they give you a lot of facts, but there's no way to figure out what really happened from all those facts that they put out. And so, so many people have a Kent State memory, and so many have a first reaction that's like, I just, it's such a bad time in my life. It's when I, I learned to never trust the government again, and I just don't want to deal with it, and they have to move on quickly because it's just too painful. 
And when you have a whole group of people in your citizenry that have that kind of pain, they don't allow us to heal. We have to carry the wound, and the wound is as it is from that day, deep. And it also says, don't go there. Please, it's too painful. And so everyone kind of moves on. And they have to move on. And they're told by everybody in the government, move on already. After half a century, I asked my old friend Dan Goldowitz what he thought about then and now. You only have one chance, one time to go around. And it's that decision that you make that determines that one time. And we had our one time in the late 60s in Washington. And nothing came of it. It sort of was a, um, you know how you can diffuse things, which a society does really well with radicals, right? The way, that's the way to take down a revolution. And the other thing is that, boy, something's got to be sitting there ready to activate. But we lose that activation energy, I think, by this one event that just didn't get actualized properly. You know, you get one try, and it's such a passionate, engaged, and it comes to naught. Your mind just shuts down that venue, that place to go, you know, at all other points in your life. That's my very pessimistic view. There has to be a much better view than that. <laughs> Karen Stern is not as pessimistic. She finds value in her protests and meaning in the tragedy at Kent State. I do believe that we we ended the Vietnamese War. I mean, there, there, I don't have any question about that. I do believe that this, the protests, you know, were a huge part of ending the war. I think the anger worked when it went back then. I don't think it would work now in the same way. Life goes on. We're all of an age. We all still work. Gerald Casale makes music and wine at his Napa Valley vineyard. Karen Stern is a successful film editor. Dan Goldwitz is a professor of medical genetics, specializing in the genetic structures of brain diseases. Laurel Krauss oversees the Kent State Truth Project. We all remember. We all have the worry of elders, that young people don't know the past that created the country they inhabit, and if they do know... They don't understand the truth of that time. I have a millennial daughter. I don't think they're geared towards demonstrating in, in the streets. I really don't. I think that they're a very peaceful lot. I really do. I think they're incredibly peaceful in their, um, in their mindset. I don't, think they're, they, I don't think they're as angry as we were. I mean, we were, we were really angry. What is the question that uh, we hear so often from students, you know, other than why did the guardsmen shoot? The students want to know, why didn't the students at the rally, why didn't they leave the commons when they were ordered to do so? You know, and the light bulb just goes off. We really had to talk about the times, and the times gave the tenor to what happened on that day. The fact that there was a generation gap, the fact that there were opposing views of the war, the fact that when students walked to uh, the commons that day, they were consciously thinking of their First Amendment rights. With students today, young people today, well, that's a whole other matter because it's not even written in the history books. I go about my life and 
I mentioned to people that my sister Allison was killed at Kent State May 4, 1970. I, I mentioned it a lot. And when I mention it to anyone under 35 or 40, their eyes glaze over. They have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, it, they don't know. And their not knowing is on purpose. And when I mention, oh, do you remember the song that Neil Young wrote about Ohio? Because that was probably the only thing that people remember, a big hit, you know? They go, yeah, kind of, but not really. In America today, as it always has been, the past is never dead. And when it comes to Kent State and Jackson State, it really isn't even the past. Ten soldiers and Nixon coming, we're finally on our own. This summer